0: Good morning. It's exciting to be here this morning. Uh, I don't know who's nervous, more nervous this morning, whether it's Brandon or or, or me. Um, I told Chris and, and Marcus and Wayne this morning that I think this message is probably the hardest one I've prepared for um, because there are so many different ways that this could go. Um, in studying and, and, and just looking at, at baptism and all the different things that can mean and all the the symbolism that's in there and all the different history that's there there's there's about a hundred different sermons that you could prepare for uh and and preach on so um i'm going to wrap it all up in 20 little minutes here so we're going to get it all done no uh but we're going to start i I wanted to just kind of give just a brief little uh, introduction, an overview, if you will, of, of what is baptism. Why, why are we here? Why do we practice it? Um, what's its purpose? Why do we do it? Uh, we'll start with that the perfect example for us, Jesus himself, was baptized. Um, and we, we believe in a believer's baptism. We believe that uh, we accept salvation, and then we're baptized, uh, and there's repentance, and forgiveness, forgiveness of sins. Uh, but Jesus did this even though there was no sin in his life, right? I mean, we all understand Jesus was perfect. There was no sin there. So why was he baptized? What was the impact or the implication of Jesus being baptized by John, whose John's baptism was a baptism of repentance from sin? So for Jesus to choose to come underneath this baptism and to allow himself to be baptized by John— would have been kind of um, a shock to the people around them, if you will, uh, for Jesus to do this. Because he's aligning himself with what the people would have viewed as a repentance from sin. Um, He chose to do this, I think, for several reasons. First of all, I, I think he chose to do this because it modeled this behavior for us. Uh, Jesus is the perfect example. He chose to do so. I think it gives us a perfect example to follow. Secondly, and this is the part I really want to get to, uh, is after Jesus is baptized, John takes him down and John baptizes him, and he comes up out of the water, and it says that immediately following, a voice from heaven spoke, and a dove came down. And the voice from heaven said these words, that this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Right? The first part of that, that this is my beloved son, I feel like that part is so meaningful and so important for us to try to capture what that means. When somebody says that this is my son, that I choose you, I identify you with me, and God said these words about Jesus, that this is my son, and in our Context in our society and in our culture, a lot of times that's how we introduce ourselves. It's a very Amish and Mennonite thing to do, but when you meet somebody new, what's one of the first questions you ask them? Well, who's your parents? Who do you belong to, right? Vast dad, right? We, we all do this, and it's a way to figure out where does this person belong to? Jesus was baptized and God said, "This is my son," as a way of identification. And today Brandon's going to experience that same thing. When he comes up out of that water, and I believe even before that, but as a symbol, God says, "Brandon, you are my son." And Brandon is choosing to identify with that. But not only that, God is choosing to identify with Brandon and call him his son. Next of all, Jesus commanded us to do it. You look at the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verse 19, and Jesus says, Go out into all the nations and baptize. Right? So there's a a straightforward command from Jesus himself saying, This is what you ought to do. You should go out to all the nations, and you should baptize and make disciples. Right? So... Pretty straightforward, easy to see. We can go through the New Testament, we can see all kinds of examples of different people who were baptized. Uh, And in each of these, when there is a specific person, we see that it is a believer's baptism. They are met with salvation, they have chosen Jesus, and then they decide to be baptized. Um, And it identifies us with Christ and publicly proclaims publicly shouts to everyone around us that we are choosing this path, that this is our life, that this is what we're deciding to do from this point on. It identifies us with that. The next thing I want to get to, and this, this was a word uh, Chris and I were fortunate enough to get together with Brandon several weeks ago at Wallhouse uh, one evening and, and during the course of that conversation, there was one word that Brandon used several times that kind of sparked this whole message for me. And that word was surrender. And he used it multiple times in different contexts that he has surrendered. And when we think of the word, just the word surrender itself, at least for me, maybe you guys have a much better view of surrender than I do, I have a pretty negative connotation to the word surrender. When we think of back through history, we look at people who have surrendered, and they are the losers, right? If you surrendered in war, it's because you were weak, you lost, whatever happened was not what you wanted to happen, so you had to surrender right? It's not a very good connotation. It, it equates surrender, historically equates with being the loser. And none of us like to be a loser, right? We all want to win. We all want to be successful. So to surrender is a hard concept sometimes to think about and to say, I choose to surrender willfully of my own self. I choose to surrender my life, my hopes, my desires, my dreams, everything I have, I surrender. I give it all up. Surrender can be, can be, doesn't have to be, but can be dejecting. It can lead to despair in some circumstances. It mean, you're giving up sometimes. I think of, of uh, here in the last week, And for those of you that know me, you probably have picked up on the fact over the years that I hate to have my picture taken, but once a year, my wife decides that we're going to go have our picture taken, period. End of story. That's just the way it is. It's going to happen. So every year, I go through this battle of I have to just surrender. I just give up. I'm like, whatever. I just surrender. We're going to go take our picture. We're going to do this. That's not exactly the surrender we're talking about. You can go back through the Bible. You can see instances of surrender throughout the Bible. Typically in wartime in the Old Testament, you'd see the Israelites fighting uh, all these different people. And either the Israelites would lose and they'd surrender and be taken into captivity. Or uh, if they were following God at the time, they would win and they would move on. So you see surrender painted constantly throughout the Old Testament. But the surrender Brandon's talking about isn't a surrender that leads to death. It's not a surrender that leads to just dejection and despair and giving up. It's a surrender that through death leads to a life that is far beyond anything that we can imagine as life before that point. So until we choose to surrender and die to ourselves, the little bit of life that we think we have and we're in control of pales in comparison to the life that is truly on the other side of that death and surrender. We were talking this morning during Sunday school, and I'm going to use Marcus's uh, thought that he shared with us. Um, You look at Saul when he was met in Damascus, he surrendered entirely at that point. He was, he was going down one path, and then he was radically changed through an encounter, and his life changed from that point forward, and he surrendered everything he had been done, doing before that point to walk through that door, to die to himself, and to move into a new life. And the church was changed because of that. History itself was changed from that moment. Another story, uh, Dirk Willems in the 1500s. Some of you are familiar with this story. Uh, he was captured. He was an Anabaptist. He was captured, and he was being held in a prison. And Dirk was upstairs, uh, tied together some bed sheets, and he escaped from this castle. Uh, it was the winter, and he escaped, and he ran off, and he came to this thin sheet of ice, and they had... Several pursuers coming after him. People were trying to capture him. He comes to this ice that's across a a pond or a lake, whatever, uh, and and he runs across it. And he gets to the other side, and he hears somebody behind him who's calling for help. And he looks back, and one of these men who has been chasing him has fallen through the ice. Now, it's very, very easy for us, I think, and it would have been easy for Dirk to look at this situation and to say, well, God is protecting me, so I'm going to keep right on going, right? God has provided the circumstance that I needed to escape for my life, and yet Dirk, through an act of surrender, turned around, went back out onto the ice, and pulled this person This person who was going to capture him pulled them out of the ice and saved their life. This person wanted to let Dirk go at that point, but they recaptured him, and eventually he was burned at the stake. This action of surrender, this laying down my own desires, laying down what I want, laying down my escape from captivity... To turn around and to show love, because that's what it is, to show love to somebody in the face of all of that. And not only did he show love to somebody, but he showed love to someone that is altogether, at least in our minds, altogether undeserving of that. It would be really easy for me if one of my my kids or my family fell through a piece of ice. It would be really easy for me to be like, yeah. I'm going to go out there, I'm going to save them. This wasn't that. This wasn't a family member. It wasn't even somebody that Dirk cared about. And yet he turned around and showed this person love. He showed love to an enemy who was attempting to kill him. A sacrificial surrender. This concept of death gives life, and surrender leads to life, makes no sense to us. We don't, we don't comprehend that picture, and it's hard to fully explain that picture. Philippians one twenty one says, For to me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And when we think about those words, almost everything I do on a daily basis is to avoid death. It's to avoid surrender. It's to... Con- maintain control of my life in whatever aspect that is. I don't want to die, but yet here he writes, to die is gain. How is that possible? How can we die and call it gain? And it's only because of that understanding that on the other side of death is a far greater life than the life we have right now. That's the only way it's possible. We would never look forward to something if it was worse than what we're dealing with today. In Ephesians 4, verse 22, it says that you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. When we die to ourselves... When we're willing to give that up, we don't need to control every little portion of our lives. And we surrender that. That's when we truly are in that new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Christ himself surrendered multiple times. But I think of the Garden of Gethsemane when he prays and he says, Lord, let this, Father, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. But he does. He submits. He surrenders. Going back to the concept of winning, I think we all enjoy winning. We all want to win at everything we do, we want to be successful and yet by all accounts by all measures that we use when we look around at each other and we interact with people on a daily and in our weeks and in our work and in wherever we're at in all areas that we measure people today as successful or winners Jesus lost Jesus ended up betrayed by his friends he was killed on a cross he had next to no earthly possessions He was despised, rejected by his own family sometimes. Are we willing to accept that, that that is a possibility that we may need to be okay with as part of that life that Christ calls us into? After we're saved and we're called to a new life, there should be change, right? We went through the study in James here as a church uh, over the last two months, whatever it was. James very pointedly brings out that that there needs to be action, that, that faith alone by itself does nothing, really. We don't do, we don't, perform actions, though, to obtain salvation. We perform actions because of salvation. Steve Byler last weekend was talking about this as well. He said that if you were to try to sum up all of Paul's writings at the end of the day, it could be summed up as faith—I have it written down, I'm sorry— faith expressed in love. And it is those actions, that radical change in how we view life and how we view winning that is a light to those around us and what we are called to be, called to do. Chris's favorite, Pete Scazzaro, I pulled this quote out just because of him, by the way. But he wrote and he said, We need to be with God before doing for God, so our doing for God overflows from our being with God. You want me to read again? <laughs> we need to be with God before doing for God, so our doing for God overflows. From our being with God. God calls us to action. We are saved, and because of that, we should want to live this radical new life. Paul wrote to Timothy, and he said, But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He also, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 He writes and he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. If we jump ahead to verse 6, he's talking about Jesus, and he says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. We are called, as followers of Christ, to put others' interests, to put others' well-beings, to put others' winning above our own. We don't need to win. In fact, we win by losing. We win by creating a win for someone else. A.W. Tozer wrote and he said that the church is not some impersonal abstract that's floating around in space, rather the church, and he's speaking of the church as a whole, but the church is comprised of individuals who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The health of the church is in direct proportion to the health of each individual. We are all called to be that part of Christ's body performing actions, putting others' interests ahead of our own, not only within the church, but to each person that we encounter throughout a week, whether that is your best friend or your worst enemy, whether that is someone who provides for you or someone who's trying to take from you. It doesn't say, well, you should only do this if that person's nice to you, right? In the Old Testament, you could go back and you could see an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and you could read all about how they were supposed to make retribution when things happen. But Jesus said, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I give you this new commandment, that you should love your enemy. Pray for those that curse you, right? It is a radical shift in how we view those around us and especially those that we perceive as enemies. It wouldn't be a baptism Sunday for Brandon if I didn't bring up running at some point into this. I've I've been immensely blessed by by spending a lot of time with Brandon out running through the woods and and running on some roads. Um, it's, it's been a lot of fun. I've, I've really enjoyed those interactions I've had with him. But I, I have two running stories that I'm going to use for, in closing here. The first one uh, happened about three years ago. Uh, and it was at Shawnee State Park in southern Ohio. Uh, and I was running there. It was a 50-mile race. Actually, it was 54. And it's down in southern Ohio. And it is super, super hilly. And I thought going into this race, I thought, man, I am so prepared. I've been running all these Holmes County hills. I am ready to go. And we started out in the morning and we started running. And we kept running and running. And finally, I wasn't running very much anymore. I was doing a lot of walking. And about mile 30, 31, 32, somewhere in there, it was getting warm in the afternoon. I didn't feel well. And I thought, you know what? I'm done. I'm going to quit. We're going to go home. I don't want to run anymore. And we rolled into the next aid station, which was one that Liz and my girls weren't supposed to be at. And I rolled in there, and there they are. And my girls are like, Dad, you're doing so good. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I sure am. But there was no way I could bring myself to tell them that, like, I just want to quit. I want to go home. (laughs) Having those people there impacts you in a time where you feel at your worst. And as a church, as a body, we're called to do that for each other. When we see hurts, we see struggles, we see each other as they're at their worst. Because there's going to be hard times. There's no questioning. You've chosen to follow Christ. And he's very clear about this. He's, he's, he tells us multiple times throughout scriptures that this isn't an easy road. You're going to lift up your cross daily and follow me. And if you're going to do that, it's not going to be easy. You're going to be hated. Don't expect anything different. That's the way it's going to be. But to have those people there to encourage you and to press you on. As I left that aid station, I crossed this little creek, and Liz has a picture of me. (laughs) And I just remember feeling so dejected as I walked across the creek because there was a huge hill coming up on the other side, and I still had 22 miles to go. I thought, I'm never, ever going to get done. And as night drew closer that evening. It was getting dark in the woods. I had left my headlamp. I didn't take it along with me. My watch had died. My phone had died. And the only real idea I had anymore of where I was at on the course was when I would get to an aid station, and they would tell me, hey, you're at mile 40 or 44 or 48. It was the only way I knew where I was going anymore. And it started to get dark, and I hit the last aid station at mile 50, And I thought, okay, I have four more miles to go. I can do this. And I remember just as darkness is setting in, I'm coming down this long hill. And I can hear off in the distance these little cowbells clattering along. And it told me, you're almost there. You're going to finish. We can do that. We can be there for those people. Brandon and I had the opportunity to run 50 miles together earlier this year, along with Marcus. This this story about, about death. Uh, we'll avoid Marcus's near encounter at mile 40. But again, it, it would have been so easy at that moment in time to say, hey, we made it 40 miles. We did great. Let's call it a day. I'm okay with staying here. And it would have been really easy to, to look at the situation and be like, you know what, it would be better if we quit and stayed here because Marcus needs me. I don't want to run these extra ten, so that's a good excuse. And yet, having Brandon there, knowing that he wanted to finish this race, wanted to finish this event, and not only did he want to finish, but we were going to go finish it strong, gave me kind of that push that I needed to get back out there and go do those last 10 miles. And coming in at that finish line is just a, it's an experience. It's incredible. And yet it pales in comparison to the actual finish line of life if we choose to surrender and die to ourselves. Hopefully, we can be that church. Hopefully, we can be those people that are around each other at those dark spots. The times you feel like you just want to walk off and you want to go home and you want to quit. Because I know we've all been there. We've all, we've all had circumstances like that. We've all faced things in life that have made us say, I, I just don't want to do this anymore. I want to go somewhere else. I don't want to, I want to be part of it. This is too hard. But then those people around you rally you and they keep you moving. That's all I have this morning. Chris? Thank you, Mike.